We're going to look at the dying thief. The dying thief, our passage is Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through to 43. In the Old Testament, it is written, the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. And that presents a real big problem for each one of us because we have all sinned. We have all done what we should not do. We have all failed to do the things that we should do, such as love God with our whole being. Is there anyone in here who loves God with their whole being? No. And we have all failed to love our neighbour as ourselves. You may think, you may actually think you have done there, but I can assure you, none of us loves our neighbour as ourselves. So we've all failed. We, the soul that sins shall die. And that speaks to each one of us in here. However, the good news is that about 2,000 years ago, the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down his life for sinners. People like you and like me. God sent his beloved Son into the world as the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. And what that means is that when wicked men nailed Jesus to a wooden cross and lifted lifted him up to die, as I said earlier, that was all done in accordance with God's eternal plan, with his foreknowledge. God knew about all of this. It was God's decree before he even founded the world. This morning we shall spend some time looking at the final hours of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the centre cross. I say the centre cross because as we see in our text in Luke's Gospel, Jesus was not alone. He was crucified between two convicted thieves. First of all, we can consider repentance. Let's read Luke chapter 23 verse 39 through to 41. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man have done nothing amiss. According to verse 39, one of the criminals railed on Jesus. He blasphemed him. That's what it means. He blasphemed Jesus, saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. He was joining the chorus of all the others, such as the rulers in verse 35, who sneered and they scoffed at Jesus as they said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. They were having fun with Jesus at the time. Also in verse 36, we see the soldiers mocking their maker and offering him vinegar to drink. When we, when we are not what, sorry, what we are not told in these verses is that initially both of the thieves hurled abuse at Jesus. I'm going to turn to 
Matthew chapter 27 and read to you verses 39 to 44. What those verses say about not just one but both of those thieves. Matthew 27 verse 39. And they that passed by reviled him, insulted him, in other words, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. And if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. They did the same as everyone else. They reviled and blasphemed the Lord Jesus Christ. But then something extraordinary happened. Because coming back to our passage in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 to 41, one of the thieves said to the other one, let's have a look at those verses again, 40 here. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man have done nothing amiss. What was happening there? Matthew's Gospel, both of the thieves reviled the Lord Jesus Christ, just like everyone else did, but now we see something very different in Luke's Gospel. In other words, there was a change in one of the thieves, a change in him. No longer was he ridiculing Jesus, Instead, what we see in these verses, he acknowledged that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Whilst at the same time, he acknowledged that he and the other thief were guilty and that they deserved to die. What can be seen happening with that thief is repentance or a change of mind. That's what it means to repent is to change your mind. The same thing can be seen in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is about a man who had two sons. The younger son asked for his share of his father's estate and he took a journey into a far country where he blew his his inheritance on wild living. Things went from bad to worse for him until finally we're told in Luke chapter 15 and verse 17 that he came to himself. I'll say that again. He came to himself. That's the prodigal son. In other words, he repented or he changed his mind. So much so that he also changed his course of actions and headed off home to his father's house. But don't imagine for one moment that that prodigal son, having got himself into terrible difficulties, he figured to himself, well, I better get home to daddy quickly because I'm not doing a good job of this, am I? I'll go home to daddy. There's a lot more to it than that. 
because he said, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. It's a lot more than just going home to daddy, isn't it? Because you've made a mess of things. We all change our minds about all sorts of things, but when God graciously saves sinners, he works godly sorrow and repentance in them. So much so that they do precisely what the prodigal son did and what the thief on the cross did. They change their minds and they acknowledge their sins before God. Again, that is repentance. A change of mind, acknowledging your sins before God. Sometimes repentance is attended by floods of tears. For example, there was a woman who, having been forgiven her many sins, washed the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ with her tears. However, it has to be acknowledged that there are more than a few people who have shed tears, perhaps many tears, that, and they've confessed their sins. And maybe they've done all of this um, witnessed by many people. The floods of tears, the confession of sin, and then what happens? Further on down the line, they forsake the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen it happen Maybe others in here have seen the same thing happen. And the whole thing has been a sham. As such, a genuine godly sorrow that works repentance unto salvation will not only be heard in a confession of sin, but also it will be seen in a born-again life, lived for the glory of the Son of God, who loved him, who loved that person, and who gave himself at the cross for that person. That doesn't mean to say that a born-again Christian's life will be perfect, that it will be sinless. Of course not. Far from it. As every Christian knows, there is still a daily battle to be fought, not in your own strength, but with God's enabling grace. It is a battle in which the old sinful nature still desires the things that are contrary to the new nature. As such, don't imagine that repentance is a once and for only experience. And I think people make this mistake. They they know about repentance and they think, well, yeah, uh, I repented 20 years ago when I became a Christian. There's a lot more to it than that. It dis- repentance describes the condition of a heart that has been touched by the grace of God. If anything, the repentance becomes more and more intense as the years go by. I know that to be the case with me. The repentance now, the, 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 the contrition, the brokenness in my heart for the, for the times when I sin and offend my God and Saviour, It's far more intense now than it was when I became a Christian. Furthermore, repentance is a grace of God that remains with the Christian right up until death. And until that death ushers him into the presence of his Lord and Saviour. In other words, even in your deathbed, dear Christian, you may well be repenting towards God of your sins. People who have no interest in the Saviour's blood will not experience a genuine God-wrought repentance. It won't bother them 
that they have offended a holy God and that they have transgressed his holy laws. Why should they care? They couldn't care unless, at least not for now, but of course that day will come when they will have to stand before God and give an account. And then they will care. Whereas a Christian sin against his heavenly father and against his saviour who laid down his life for him will grieve him and it will weigh heavily upon him. We see that in Psalm 32, a psalm of David. Before he confessed his sin or at the time when he was was repenting uh, of, of, of sinning against God, he spoke of the hand of God being heavy upon him. His bones waxed old through his roaring day and night. And then he confessed his sins to the Lord and he he experienced that forgiveness. And that was a man of God. Not someone just becoming a Christian. As I say, that repentance is something that stays with a Christian from the time of conversion till the time of death and being ushered into the presence of God. Even so, despite all that repentance, he will continue to rejoice in that Jesus has paid the debt of of his sin in full. So there's a couple of things going on here. There's that repentance, that contrition, but also, as the Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say rejoice. And he meant it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. Always rejoice in the Lord If you're a Christian, no matter what's happening, whether it's all the things that are going on around you, problems perhaps with family, whatever it is, or or of course your sin. You don't rejoice in your sin, but you rejoice in your great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid the debt of sin in full. Let's have a look. Having looked at repentance, we can look at the faith of the thief of at least one of the thieves let's have a look at verse 42 and he said unto Jesus Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom those few words of the repentant thief who most certainly knew that he was dying he was nailed to a cross he knew that he was dying and he turned to Jesus right next to him and he said those words Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Who was he saying that to? Jesus, who was nailed to a cross as well, and dying as well. The thief knew that, and yet he still said those words. And that demonstrated his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What his understanding of salvation from sin and everlasting life was, is anybody's guess. And it appears that he was simply looking to Jesus to raise him up when Jesus returns at the end of the age. Even so, his faith was genuine. He was trusting in Jesus. What can be seen in not both of those thieves, but one of those thieves is repentance and saving faith. And those two are inseparable when it, when it comes to um, being a truly born-again Christian. Though they are different, they can be considered as two sides of the same coin. 
A genuine saving faith in Jesus is of necessity attended by repentance. We see both with that thief. The repentance when he turned to the other thief and acknowledged his sin that he deserved to die and he acknowledged that Jesus had done nothing wrong. That's repentance. And then the faith when he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Faith in Jesus who was on that cross dying at the time. In fact, there is no such thing as a genuine saving faith in Jesus without repentance. The Bible makes it very clear that salvation from sin is received by received through repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, during his earthly ministry, Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the time, <clears throat> the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. There you have it. Repent and believe in the same breath. Also, before the risen Saviour returned to heavenly glory, let's have a look together what he said there. You, all you have to do is look on to the next chapter, Luke chapter 24, verses thir- uh, 46 and 47. Luke 24, 46 and 47. This is Jesus speaking, and he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission for sins of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Look at that verse 47 there. Repentance and remission of sins. Remissions of sins. That's preaching the gospel. So, these things are to be preached, to be preached by me, to be proclaimed by all of you who belong to Jesus. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul wrote about himself, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Gentiles, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you have both of them in Acts chapter 20 verse 21. Repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. As such, a call to repent implies a call to believe in the in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And what that means, when you see those passages, perhaps in Acts of the Apostles or maybe in Romans or elsewhere, where you are called upon to believe, you can very, very safely assume that you are to repent as well and vice versa. Where there's a call to repent, there's a call to believe. the problem arises when man-pleasing preachers call upon their congregations to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but they do not challenge them with regards to their rebellion against the Holy God although the Bible instructs us to preach both repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
that isn't always followed in churches. And people aren't challenged with regards to their rebellion against a holy God. The pastors, the preachers do not preach repentance towards God despite being told to do so in the Bible. And consequently what happens is that people who have never repented, they've never changed their mind, are baptised upon some profession of faith in Jesus. The sin has never been addressed as such, or very superficially at most. And there's a profession of faith, and boom, baptism follows. An example of that comes that comes to mind is the Alpha Course, which does proclaim the Gospel. It even considers how sin affects us, we can all we can all agree to that. We can all agree how when we do something wrong, it might make us feel pretty lousy. We might lose sleep over it. That's what sin does to us. And we might even end up saying sorry if we're nice and polite. Do something or say something wrong to someone. What do we what do we Brits do? We we apologise. We say sorry. That's how what we're brought up to do. And it's the right thing to do. But that is not repentance towards God, is it? Repentance towards God is something that is goes up to heaven. Like the prodigal son. And like the thief on the cross who was repentant towards God, towards the incarnate son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can say sorry a thousand times and so you should if you do something wrong. But that Never, don't make, don't mistake that for evidence towards God and faith in towards the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Alpha Course, there is that gospel message being proclaimed, people talking about the effects of sin, how it affects them, but that is not designed to induce a repentance towards God. Let me read what Pastor Chris Hand, Chris Hand, who has studied the Alpha Course in depth, has said about the Alpha Course. And I'll quote Chris Hand. He's uh, someone who speaks extensively and he's written books about the Alpha Course. And this is what he said. There is no recognition of the need to repent and to turn to God as a matter of life and death. People feel forgiven but do not seem to have realised the depth of their sinfulness or repented of their sin. People feel cleansed without having consciously put their faith in Christ. Often this happens when people are in some ecstatic state. Alpha may regard this as conversion, but it is not what we find in the Bible. Last of all, let's have a look at the what Jesus said to the thief, the promise of paradise. Look at verse 43 in Luke chapter 23. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There was once a leper who came to Jesus and worshipping him said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The Lord Jesus Christ, he put his hand upon the leper and he said, I am willing, be thou clean. And immediately the leper was cleansed. Immediately there were, 
No, there was no prescription written out, no, no trip to the chemist, no uh, drugs, no surgery, none of that stuff. It was immediate, immediate cleansing. Likewise, in our passage, the repentant and believing thief received immediate forgiveness and the promise of entering heaven that very day and not at some time in the future. What can we learn from the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to the penitent thief? For one thing, heaven is immediate after death for the souls of all who are trusting in Jesus as repentant sinners. It's immediate upon death, as it was to that thief. There is no purgatory. Roman Catholicism wrongly teaches that all who die in God's grace and friendship, but who are still imperfectly purified, undergo purgatory so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. That is a pack of lies. If you are a Christian, then when you die, you die perfectly purified. As indeed, if you're a Christian now, you are perfectly purified. Even though there is that ongoing struggle with sin, you have been washed with the blood of Jesus. You have been cleansed from all sin. And Jesus has made you fit to enter into the presence of a holy God. Jesus has himself purged you with his own blood. There is no purgatory. It's a lie. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that soul simply refers to a living person. So when you die, that's the end of it. Once you're dead, the soul's gone. It's dead because a soul is a living person. One and the same thing. When you die, there's no soul. There's no hell. There's nothing, unless, of course, Jehovah reconstitutes you at the end of the age and you live upon that new paradise earth. Otherwise, nothing. When you die, your soul dies. That's their belief. That's what they're taught. They really ought to read various scriptures such as when the prophet Elijah prayed to God concerning a widow's son who had died. Elijah said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. Can you see that? There was a separation of body and soul when the boy died. And the Lord answered Elijah's prayer and the soul and body were reunited. Again, this is a picture of what happens when you and I will die. A separation of body and soul. And though the body will see decay, the soul, if you are someone who has died repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting towards God, for your sin, believing in Jesus for salvation, your soul will go to be with Jesus in paradise. The same as that promise to the repentant thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. 
he was told by Jesus. And of course, the only thing that will change all of that is if Jesus comes before you die. And then you will go to be with Jesus anyway. Body, a glorified body and glorified soul. If you are someone who has what? Repented, continuing to repent of your sins towards God and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the thief on the cross. Finally, do you have the promise of paradise when you die? Or putting it another way, have you trusted the Son of God as a repentant sinner, believing that he was wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities? Amen.